The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Election 2024, the Post Political Roundtable. I'm Sean Sullivan, the campaign editor here at The Washington Post, and today we continue our discussion about the 2024 election with some of the top political journalists in our newsroom. First up today, Ashley Parker, senior national correspondent here at The Post. Ashley, welcome to Election 2024. Good to have you on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. So Ashley, I wanted to start with this great story that you had recently in the Post outlining some of the anxieties, some of the worries that Democrats across the country are voicing openly about the 2024 election and about the Biden campaign and also how the Biden campaign is kind of trying to respond to that. Can you talk a little bit about what you found, what worries people and how the campaign is trying to deal with those worries within their own party right now? Sure. Well, what we found in the Democratic Party, um, and to be clear, this includes uh, this includes donors, this includes strategists and operatives, this includes voters, this includes uh, Biden allies and people uh, even in the president's administration and in his campaign. Um, there, there is a deep concern um, that he may not be the best candidate to beat Donald Trump, who Democrats expect to be the Republican nominee uh, in November. Um, and a lot of those concerns center fairly or unfairly around his age and sort of the the way he seems to be aging. Um, and there, there is a desire among some for a plan B, for someone other than Biden to be the Democratic nominee. Uh, but there is also a recognition um, that the campaign and the administration have made quite clear, and as well as the calendar, that there is no plan B, that sort of Biden is the best they've got, he is their guy, and the campaign and the administration want everyone to, to fall in line and support him. Yeah, and lots to unpack there. I want to get back to the age thing in a moment because that is a really interesting thing that we just see continue to come up in our reporting and in the polling. Of course, it's happening against the backdrop of this war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. How has that also sort of affected the way that Democrats, you know, rank and file voters, lawmakers, people inside the administration even, how has that sort of affected the way that they think about this president and the way that they look at the next election? Well, this is one of the really big fissures currently in the Democratic Party. Um, and it's interesting because Biden ran uh, on this promise to sort of restore America in the eyes of the world. And as, as a legitimate expert um, on foreign policy, based on his decades in the Senate and on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and a lot of what he did at, at the beginning was going around and, and touring the globe. And I went with him on some of those trips. And world leaders, especially our allies, were delighted to have him back after those four years of Trump. So that's all to say there's something uh, a little bit ironic, or I have to imagine frustrating for the president, to be facing sort of internal dissent on something that so feels a part of his valley with like foreign policy. But again, what you're seeing in the Democratic Party and what Biden is dealing with in his own administration is what we're seeing across the country, that there is a real division uh, on how Americans feel about uh, the handling of the war, um, the Israel-Gaza war, and among younger voters, which are an incredibly important part of any Democratic coalition, a Biden coalition, 
there is a lot of disagreement and some people want to see him call for a ceasefire. Some people feel that he is supporting Israel too forcefully. Some people are very upset by the civilian casualties we continue to see in Gaza. Um, and there is a real sort of policy and humanitarian uh, division in the party on this issue. And it is hurting Biden's support among especially those critical voters 18 to 34. Yeah, that's really interesting. Ashley, I want to ask you about the polls. This is the thing that and we both know from covering politics for a long time. It makes people nervous, makes people happy, <laughs> makes people excited, sad. Makes people, people crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of these polls right now do show Donald Trump leading President Biden in some battlegrounds. Other polls show like a really close like neck and neck race. So when you talk to sources, officials in the Democratic Party and even just regular voters, how do they see this? Is this expected? Are they panicking about the fact that the former president is running so close or, or in some cases ahead of uh, the current president? How do they kind of see these polling numbers and how are they processing it? So again, it depends who you talk to. Some of um, the adjutant concern and the desire for a plan B that we reported on and wrote about was based on these polls, was based on Democrats saying a second term of Trump would be cataclysmic. And we're now seeing polls that say that Trump would beat Biden. Trump would beat Biden in five out of six critical swing states. Um, so there's a lot of anxiety and concern and nervousness about the polls um, among some sects or large sects. Now, if you talk to the Biden campaign, their response, um, which, you know, it's a campaign response, so it may be partially spin, but they also seem to legitimately believe it, is that these are polls a year out, right? Um, and the election is not being held today. And they believe when the election becomes a binary contest um, between Tr Biden and Trump, that's who they believe will be between, they think that, that Biden will simply do better, that voters do not want what Donald Trump is selling, uh, what he was, what he would bring again. And when voters are faced with a stark choice, as Joe Biden himself says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. When they can start comparing him forcefully to the alternative, which they believe to be Donald Trump, that these polls uh, will ultimately end in their favor. But they also say, look, we knew this was going to be hard. That's why we joined this campaign. That's why we moved to Wilmington. They said pretty starkly that when they do presentations to donors, these closed door presentations, one of their last slides basically says, this is hard. If 45,000 votes in across three states had gone a different way in 2020, Donald Trump would still be president. So the idea that the polls are close, that this is going to be a tough competition, their answer is sort of, duh, that's why we're in it. That's why we're fighting. That's why we uprooted our lives and moved to Wilmington. And they believe that voters get engaged near the very end. And that's when they will be able to make an affirmative case and a, a contrasting case for President Biden. Yeah, the, the only poll that counts is the one on election day is the line that I often yes. <laughs> uh, hear uh, from, from Democrats, also Republicans. Um, I want to get back to the age thing that you raised earlier, Ashley, which is an important one. Um, obviously, in our reporting, in our polling, in our conversations with voters, I mean, this comes up like all the time and the fact that people see Biden's age as, as a liability. But Donald Trump, on the other side, is, is not that much younger. He's 77 years old. Um, he has had verbal stumbles on the campaign trail that we and others have documented. And so I wonder if you have a sense of why it is that it seems that people have a different perception of Biden's advanced age versus former President Trump's age. Right, because they're essentially the same age. Um, 
within the margin of error? I mean, it's a fascinating question. It's one I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, it's it's a couple things. Um, you know, one is that, and I should also say that by all accounts in our reporting is that Biden is incredibly sharp when people meet with him in, in closed door meetings. Um, they say he has sort of not lost a step mentally, which is part of the concern. And that is certainly something that Republicans are fanning the fire of. Um, but, but part of age are the physical manifestations of age. And in sort of a purely performative measure, Biden comes across as stereotypically older than Donald Trump. And I'm not talking about the content of what they're saying. You're right. Trump has had a number of verbal slips. We've written about them and those could hurt him with voters who have concerns about age. But in terms of Biden shuffles often when he walks. Again, that's something in his doctor's note. I believe it's the result, you know, potentially of aging, but of, of a foot injury. Just because you shuffle doesn't mean you're not mentally sharp. Um, but shuffling is associated with old age. He often, as you know, he can sometimes whisper. His voice can become kind of coarse. He sometimes uh, in public settings off the cuff is better than others. You can talk to his own aides and some of them during certain speeches, you know, will privately admit or, or donors or operatives or senators, Democratic senators, that they're sort of white knuckling it and hoping Biden makes it, you know, uh, off of the lectern, off of the stage with no missteps or gas or stumbles. And Trump performatively um, seems much more vigorous. Now, is that fair? Not necessarily, but this is what we repeatedly hear reflected back from voters. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it does seem like just one of the defining issues uh, of this election that that is not going away um, anytime soon. Um, Ashley, we'll have to leave it right there. Thank you so much for your great analysis. As always, Ashley Parker, uh, Senior National Political Correspondent here at The Post. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, let's continue the conversation right now with two of our other top journalists here at The Post, Brianna Tucker, who is the deputy campaign editor, and Marianne Levine, who is one of our national political reporters covering the campaign. Hello to both of you. Happy uh, post-Thanksgiving Monday. Hello, good to be here. Uh, Brianna, I want to start with you. Just big picture here. We've been talking about the Democratic side uh, for the last 10 minutes. Let's talk about the Republicans. There does seem to be a bit of a shift happening, at least in part of this race. Donald Trump's still the clear leader in the Republican primary, but Nikki Haley seems to be surging uh, across the board. We've seen some good polling for her uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire, elsewhere. Seems to have eclipsed Ron DeSantis in a lot of ways. Can you talk about sort of what's happening in the state of play right now in this Republican race with seven weeks left until uh, the Iowa caucuses? Yeah, you know, I think voters as well are starting to figure out not just who they want to see as their their number one, their number two, their number three, but we're starting to see the field, um, or at least conversations around consolidation start to happen. Um, we've been through now, excuse me? Uh, we've been through now um, a couple different uh, quick dropouts that have happened with Pence, with Tim Scott, um, these major players that are happening to be, um, you know, quite experienced candidates in this field. And now we're starting to see uh, with Haley and DeSantis as the top two, Haley kind of overcoming and surpassing DeSantis. Um, and she's going to have to have a really good showing in New Hampshire as well. So both of those teams are doing a lot of traveling in the next couple of weeks in Iowa and New Hampshire. We know there's going to be one more debate, uh, at least on December 6th. 
Um, and we can expect to see a really competitive showing between those two candidates. Um, but there's still Chris Christie, there's still Ramaswamy, um, there's still, um, you know, a, a split among the field where Trump is the dominant front rolling uh, um, uh, front runner. And so uh, in the next couple of weeks, we um, hope to see at least um, if, if Haley will really rise to the top and if there will be more consolidation behind her and she'll kind of take off that momentum. Um, DeSantis as well. He's going to have a really good debate uh, with uh, Gavin Newsom. So we are looking forward to see if that will also kind of be a turning point for his campaign um, as he stakes out in Iowa even more. Yeah, I want to get back to that debate in a moment, uh, the Republican debate that is. It's coming up soon. Uh, but Marianne, before we get to that, I want to talk to you about Donald Trump, who you cover pretty closely. Uh, it was a quiet weekend overall on the campaign trail, but Trump was out there. He was at a football game. He went to the South Carolina Clemson game big rivalry in a big early state. What was he trying to do? What was his message? And sort of more broadly, what is your sense from your reporting about kind of how they view this, this phase of the campaign? I mean, I think Trump right now is just trying to consistently assert his dominance in the Republican primary and really just trying to solidify this idea that he is the inevitable nominee. I mean, South Carolina is a state that helped solidify his lead in the 2016 Republican primary. He won that state by about 10 points. He has the backing of the governor, Henry McMaster, and Senator Lindsey Graham. And I, I interpreted his visit to um, South Carolina as just a way to to kind of um, you know visit one of the early states and also kind of just reassert himself as the current front runner in this field. And of yeah, course, not to mention, oh sorry, I was going to mention Go it's ahead. also of course like Nikki Haley's home state. So it is. Um, it seemed like a way for him to try to assert his dominance right now. Yeah, and he's sort of doing that by not really engaging a lot of the time with the rest of the field. And so to your point, Brianna, on the debates, we've got another one coming up uh, in early December. We don't expect that Donald Trump is going to participate in this again. You know, these debates in the past have been these big moments in the campaign where you get these sort of game-changing exchanges or shifts in momentum. But it really hasn't felt that way this time, and the ratings keep going down. So I wonder, as you look ahead, Brianna, to this next debate, I mean, realistically, how much potential is there even for this to affect the way voters think about these candidates? I mean, I think the pool of voters that we have that are strictly Trump, you know, through and through MAGA supporters, they have not, you know, moved away from Trump camp. Uh, even among, you know, 91 charges across four indictments, they are uh, very much supporting Trump. Um, they are, you know, in his camp, at his rallies. They are uh, probably some of the hardest voters to pull away. Um, and so you have these Republican candidates like DeSantis, and especially like Haley, who are trying to not just pull uh, more moderates into the fold. They're looking for those, um, you know, suburban women. They're looking for some of the kind of independent, maybe, um, you know, never Trump voters, or at least some of the Republican voters who may have left the party because of Trump, um, but are open to supporting another Republican candidate in the field. So I think, uh, you know, this last debate, we've seen the first debate become a lot more, you know, substantive time over time. Um, less about, you know, the the jabs, but also more about some of the policies that they're concluding. Um, and in more recent times, especially how each of them are, um, you know, kind of competing to be the most pro-Israel candidate among the field. So I think this next debate, uh, you know, we'll be looking to see one, if if there's one particular candidate that, you know, voters and donors especially are, are coalescing behind. Um, and then again, Trump will not be there. Uh, there will likely probably be, you know, some counter programming that is outside of the debate. And so it really kind of is between 
uh, Haley and DeSantis as those top two, and among those, uh, which voters would would flock to one camp or the other? Yeah, and of course, the threshold uh, we should mention keeps going up for these debates. They have to meet certain amount of individual donors. They also have to meet a polling threshold. So it's not totally clear exactly how many candidates we're going to see on stage, but it's it's a much smaller group than you know what I remember on the Democratic side back in 2020 when you had a, a really big field. Um, but you mentioned Ron DeSantis, uh, Brianna, and Marianne, I want to ask you about a recent endorsement that he got in Iowa from Bob Vanderplatz, uh, who's a Christian conservative leader in Iowa. He's somebody who has uh, developed a following in the state. He's somebody who has um, backed candidates like Ted Cruz, Mike Huckabee, others in the past who have won. Uh, but I want to ask you, how much realistically is this endorsement worth politically right now? Trump is up by a lot in the polls in Iowa and everywhere else. I mean, talk a little bit about this endorsement. You've, you've written and reported on, on Vanderplatz before and, and talked to him. Is this something that has the potential to move the needle or are people just going to look at this and kind of shrug it off? I mean, I think it's hard to say right now. I mean, it feels like it could move the needle a little bit. It's certainly um, a win for Ron DeSantis to get that endorsement. But he is also, as you mentioned, very far behind Donald Trump uh, right now in Iowa. So it seems like the endorsement could help him solidify um, evangelical voters who are very, um, who are very supportive of um, who, who, who Vanderplatz represents, but a lot of evangelical voters also support Trump. And so I think there's kind of a divide within that community in Iowa over um, over who to support. And Ron DeSantis has definitely put a lot of effort into courting evangelical voters. And so getting the Vanderplatz endorsement certainly could help a little bit, but just given the distance between him and Trump, it's hard to see whether this really gives him the momentum he needs to win in Iowa. I mean, the last Des Moines Register poll had him and Nikki Haley tied, and we have not seen much movement for DeSantis, even with um, Governor Kim Reynolds' endorsement, which was also a big Iowa endorsement. So I think while Vanderplatz has had a history of picking um, the winner in Iowa, it, it's hard to know whether that streak is going to continue given just the current state of the race and given Trump's dominance right now in that state. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and Brianna, I want to stick with Iowa for a second. Uh, it, it reminded me, you know, what you said, Marianne, that it's this unusual situation where you have sort of members of the Iowa political establishment, whether it's Governor Kim Reynolds or Vanderplatz or others who have turned against Trump. And yet Trump is the big leader there. He draws huge crowds every time he goes to Iowa. Every poll shows him leading. So, Brianna, lay out sort of the state of play for us in Iowa. I think we are seven weeks from the caucuses. Not that I'm counting, although I absolutely am. Uh, as you both know. Uh, but but where are we in this race uh, in Iowa? Uh, and what are you looking for uh, from some of these candidates in, in the final stretch um, as we move toward caucus day? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you have your candidates like DeSantis who are, you know, hoping to meet all uh, 99 counties in Iowa. I think these next weeks, as we get closer, especially to um, the caucus, you're going to see one, a lot more activity. All the candidates, I think, are really going to be going all in. Um, we've seen beforehand that they were moving a lot of their staffs there, uh, even before, you know, Tim Scott or Pence or, or had these plans to really um, incubate in the state and meet as many voters as possible. Um, but I do think that one, like the evangelical base that is there, um, that Trump also has uh, a pretty a pretty uh, strong standing with, I think that Haley and DeSantis as well are gonna be trying to move in on these voters um, as much as possible. Uh, we will also be there, of course, reporting um, in early January, but I do think it's gonna be a pretty, um, 
uh, interesting and tight race as well. Yeah, interesting and tight and very, very cold as well. So we're going to have to bring a lot of jackets just based on my experience from being in Iowa in, in December and January. Um, Marianne, I want to turn back to Trump for a second. I mean, you know, he is winning in Iowa. He's winning everywhere across the board in the Republican Party. But as we and others have reported, there are people uh, who have worked with Donald Trump as president, who have worked in his administration, who have worked closely with him, who are saying publicly that he should not be president, that he is not qualified uh, to have a second term. It's a pretty striking thing. And we have not really seen this before in the past uh, with presidents. And so I wonder what impact politically do you think this has in the Republican primary? And if the impact is limited, could it have an impact in the general election, perhaps, when you've got swing voters and maybe former Republicans who are deciding you know, whether they want to vote for the party candidate or not? I think it's really hard to say. I mean, uh, our colleague Josh Dossie did that great story recently about um, former members of the administration warning against Trump coming back for a second term. Ty Cobb, who represented him um, during uh, the probe into Russia's interference in the 2016 election, has said that re-electing Trump would reduce um, the United States' standing. So we have some pretty strong words of um, words of disapproval um, against uh, against Trump from people who worked in his um, cabinet and in his administration. Um, but I think that it's hard to say what the impact is going to be, just given that voters already have a pretty set view of Trump. You know, I think a lot of voters, and what's interesting about this upcoming election is that you almost have two incumbents running uh, against each other. And so it's hard to know if anything right now is really going to sway how individual voters feel about Trump, just because a lot of how they feel is baked in based on the last eight years or so. And so it's hard to predict, um, but I think we're just going to have to see how it might affect the general election. Right now, it does not appear to be having much impact at all in the Republican primary. I mean, you had the former vice president, Mike Pence, essentially say that you can't support the Constitution and and support Donald Trump when he announced his his um, presidential run and that and he um, obviously did not do well in the primary and has since dropped out. And so I think that is also telling that that message is not really resonating with Republican primary voters. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of putting it. It does feel like we have two incumbents effectively running against each other. Right. Um, Brianna, I want to turn to the literal incumbent in this situation, Joe Biden, uh, the president, um, and talk about an issue you've, you've had an eye on. Um, and, and that is his standing with younger voters right now, younger voters, Gen Z voters, millennial voters. I mean, these are typically voters who vote Democratic, who voted in pretty big numbers for Joe Biden when he ran against Trump in 2020. But we are seeing signs in our reporting and in polling that his support is, is slipping and potentially uh, slipping further uh, right now. And so I wonder, one, what you attribute that to, why we are seeing that happen, and two, what the long-term implications could be for Biden, for the Democrats, among a group of voters that they've really sort of counted on for a long time as a core part of their constituency. Yeah, well, I think that support that we're seeing that's been waning uh, has been waning over the years. This is kind of not a new phenomenon. I think when Biden was elected, he campaigned on a lot of big promises that young people wanted to see, including student loan forgiveness, um, you know, a really robust climate change plan, um, you know, our economy, inflation, swinging us out of a pandemic. And young voters uh, have not felt like they've seen these promises delivered, um, specifically with student loan forgiveness, which we know was um, a Supreme Court decision. But 
ultimately, um, or excuse me, not a Supreme Court decision, but was ultimately challenged, um, but was was not delivered to them. And, and that was also a really big promise for Biden. Um, as also looking at just the economy and inflation, and the cost of living, um, you know, young voters, particularly, again, Gen Z and millennials, who will likely make up 40% of the electorate in 2024, um, are a big base to Biden, and they are extremely important uh, voting block. And so, we're seeing that that support that's waning right now is not brand new. Um, but I also think that specifically uh, the conflict in Israel and between Gaza um, has become kind of like the newest uh, pressure point for Biden with young voters. Um, and I would probably, you know, attribute that especially to the experts that we've we've spoken to, at least that have, you know, described this as a really big generational shift um, between younger voters and older voters. But again, um, just some of the parallels that younger voters see between, um, you know, the treatment of minorities in the U.S. versus the treatment of Palestinians. Um, you also have uh, a lot of voters who, quite frankly, don't feel like Biden has campaigned for their vote. Um, it's really difficult to kind of campaign on this constant uh, you know, um, just drawing contrast to Trump, um, whereas Biden has not campaigned much at all. Um, and a lot of young voters that we've spoken with on the trail at universities feel like their vote might be taken for granted. Um, and again, it, it does feel like a very likely 2020 rematch between Biden and Trump. And so that kind of idea has been um, just dreaded by a lot of the voters that we've spoken to of all ages um, that happen to be Democrats or Democratic leaning. And so there's kind of this fatigue between a lack of options, um, which is just, you know, Joe Biden and not a, a really strong primary challenger, um, as well as just delivering on his promises and what he'll be able to accomplish in 2024. Yeah, it's a really fascinating dynamic. And, and just to follow up on that briefly, Brianna, I mean, is, is the notion that a lot of these younger voters are inclined to sit, sit it out? Are they inclined to maybe give a third party candidate a look? Are they inclined to maybe vote Republican? Like, what is the sort of prevailing sentiment right now that, that is coming across in, in this reporting? Well, it's interesting to to tell. Um, we, we just went to Michigan actually to to see and ask a couple voters what they were thinking. A lot of Gen Z um, student voters, some who have been organizers or, or plan to organize in 2024, many who are first time voters or will be first time voters in uh, 2024. And uh, many of them, while they've expressed a lot of dissatisfaction and they've, they've recognized that not voting for Biden, um, you know, either as their way and in their words as harm reduction or just to um, you know, support the party candidate, uh, they felt like that it was worth looking at a third party vote. Um, but a lot of those voters as well expressed a lot of frustration around whether there was a serious, you know, a challenger or, or opposition or you know another primary candidate that would rise to challenge Biden. Um, you also have some voters who we spoke with who expressed sitting out the election. Um, I think that is really difficult to kind of predict at this point in time, even a year out. Um, you know, that's something that we'll get closer to, and I think as we'll see who will be the Republican nominee, um, you know, whether or not that will be a motivating factor and kind of change the minds. But so far, a couple of those students that we talked to, um, there has not been a really strong student kind of organizing um, appearance at that university. So it's difficult to tell what that looks like nationally around, you know, state to state, especially in more swing states where the young voter bloc will be extremely important for Biden to win over. Um, but those seem to be a really big frustration for, for young voters. Yeah, that'll be an interesting thing to watch, no doubt. Uh, Marianne, we, we throw around the word unprecedented a lot uh, when we look at this uh, campaign cycle. 
Uh, one thing that is clearly unprecedented is having a candidate who is leading in their party uh, face uh, 91 criminal charges, four criminal indictments, and that's, of course, what Donald Trump is looking at right now. And so when we look toward 2024, uh, that seems to be one of the defining characteristics here. How does this candidate, if he continues on in this race, uh, if he becomes the nominee in the Republican Party, navigate both running for president but also dealing with those cases? And uh, I was really fascinated by this great story that you did where you spent some time up close uh, at a courthouse observing him uh, as a witness uh, in a civil case. This was not a criminal case, it was a civil case. But notice some interesting things about the way that he uh, talked about uh, things, the way that he rebutted certain attacks. So what were your takeaways from observing him for many, many hours uh, on that day earlier this year? And what do you think it says about what we will see from Donald Trump as he tries to navigate both running for president and uh, navigating all of these trials? Yeah, I mean, what really struck me uh, when I was in New York watching him um, on the witness stand in this um, New York civil um, civil case that he's facing was just how there was really no difference between Donald Trump on the witness stand and Donald Trump on the campaign trail. Like he talked about election interference. He talked about crime in New York. He essentially portrayed himself as a victim of a weaponized um, judicial system. He attacked the judge. He attacked Letitia James, which he does um, quite frequently on Truth Social. And it was interesting to watch that because oftentimes when you're on the witness stand, um, you know, lawyers will tend to advise to you know not say too much, not to attack the judge, um, and and obviously he. Um, he he basically took the same approach he takes on the campaign trail, which is essentially saying that the system is out to get him. And um, you know that approach and his um, his his accusations that the Justice Department is weaponized is something that has worked for him in a in the Republican primary. We've seen his support grow amid the indictments he's facing. But how that plays out in a general election next year, I think, really remains to be seen. And does that conduct? Um, affect swing voters or people who are thinking about potentially supporting him again. I think we don't quite know the answer to that yet, but I think it was really striking how um, similar Donald Trump on the witness stand was to Donald Trump in Iowa or New Hampshire giving a campaign rally speech. I mean, even during the um, even during the his um, testimony, the judge at one point said, you know, this isn't a political rally. And so um, I think that statement was very telling in how Trump has approached this, um, where he's essentially going to try to use these cases to his advantage. Now, whether that works um, is a broader question, and I think a lot remains to be seen next year, but certainly his um, legal entanglements will definitely be front and center as he tries to make a return to the White House. It'll be a busy year for all of us, no doubt. Uh, Brianna Tucker, Marianne Levine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're out of time right now, so we're going to have to leave it right there. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, B-E-E-T-S.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.